Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with me here today. We have got a great show for you today talking about alternative solutions, all kinds of alternatives to things that you can do in life. It is jam-packed with four amazing, great guests. So there won't be any commercials, just a little bit of me talking to segue between them, and we're going going to help you find some alternative solutions for your life today on Thriving Entrepreneur. Let's jump into it. Join me in welcoming Emil Rem. Hey, Emil, how are you doing today? Very well indeed. Thank you, Steve. Good. I'm so glad to hear it. So tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Oh, I think everything that could go wrong went wrong with me. Uh, my mom divorced my dad when I was five, left Africa, couldn't speak English, went to England, uh, couldn't look after me. And I went from a Muslim Indian family to a working class uh, English family in a rundown uh, council estate, low housing estate, where I was the only colored person. Failed my exams at school. Uh, and I was called a loser by my mom virtually all my life. Uh, I somehow managed to get an accounting qualification. I'd failed my high school exam, but I got my accounting qualification. As soon as I got my paper, I decided to emigrate. And I went from England uh, all the way through to Canada. And I've been in Canada, Calgary now for almost 45 years and doing really well. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. So uh, tell us a little bit about um, the things that you do for business and how you help people out? Well, uh, I, I started off my life as uh, being hired from England as an accountant. Calgary was booming. It was an oil, ta- oil town. And um, I was hired by an accounting firm. And the accounting firm had Jewish clients. Uh, and so I, I went to them and they were mainly in real estate. And I worked for them. They liked me and they offered me a job with them, which I took. And I found that I was, I was very creative in, in saving them taxes. And they really appreciated that. But with the oil booms, there's also a bust. When the bust came, they went out of business. You know, it was a $100 million company at that time. And it went into receivership. So I had to start all over again. And I picked up clients and went back to public accounting, which I really didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't very keen on, but I had to do something. I started picking up clients. Uh, all of the Jewish clients that I had before um, came back again uh, as the economy turned around. And instead of working for one of them, I worked for a whole group of them. Uh, one particular person a few years ago came to me about 10 years ago and he was selling all his property, wanted to retire, and he wanted to save taxes. I worked with, a, I found a, a friend of mine who was a lawyer, and we came up with a structure that would save him a lot of his taxes. And he was very happy with that. And so what I did was I moved, shifted completely out of public accounting 
uh, into trying to help people save their taxes. And, uh, and uh, did very well on that. Now, that also led me into financing companies, um, helping little small companies grow. And, and so I used my creative side uh, to be able to do that. But the accounting qualification that I had opened so many doors to me because it gave me credentials. Uh, but most of my life has been a matter of trying to persuade people to do things away from their orthodox way of thinking. And that is whether looking at, at their taxes, whether looking at the way that they do their business. Uh, recently, uh, recently, about six years ago, I, I started to write books. I decided I wanted to write books. Uh, and so I wrote these travel journals where I travel abroad. Uh, and I compare eccentrics uh, in that particular country with eccentrics I've met in my life. Uh, originally, it was uh, a matter of writing my history for my kids. Uh, but even that uh, started with going straight into something I really didn't know anything about and really trying to learn the business and trying to listen to advice from everybody. I love that. So the less... Uh, yeah, so... The lesson I've, I've learned in life is really that everything is a stepping stone to something else. And I, my purpose in life is really to try and convince people to think uh, of, of their own life and the people around them in different ways. So tell us about your latest book. Um, what inspired you to write that particular one and um, you know a little bit more about it? Well, the, late, uh, the book that uh, came out about a year ago uh, was called Heart of New York, and it, and it was phenomenal because I, had, I didn't know anything about writing, and yet I got great aid uh, from independent reviewers such as Kirkus, uh, as well as uh, uh, Book Life. Uh, that book was uh, supposed, it was uh, a comparison of eccentric of people I met in New York and comparing them to people I, I met in Calgary uh, when I arrived in 1980, uh, straight, uh, straight up to the current date. Now, the first book that I had was called The uh, Chasing Aphrodite, and that was initially written for my boys. Uh, and that compared uh, my summer holiday in, in Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, and compared it to all of the eccentrics that I had met in Africa, uh, as as well as uh, as well as in England as well, and the New York one now now took the stories uh, in comparing uh, incidents in New York to those uh, to the people I had met in Calgary. And this third book, which is coming out in August, is called The Vanished Gardens uh, of Cordoba, and it explores the the uh, Spain and inner Spain, uh, where, the, uh, where the Arabs, the Moors, came in, uh, uh, attacked uh, Spain from North Africa and took over three quarters of Spain for about 400 years. So again, it was there uh, looking at the culture that the, that the Arabs brought, introduced to uh, Spain, and how the Spain and the Spanish took that, uh, took them, uh, came back and took back their country and then converted all the mosques into uh, Christian churches. So all my all the books have really been about looking at something through one person's eyes 
who might be bigoted, who might be white, and then turning it around, looking at the story from the other person's point of view. And that really does help uh, in business as well, because so many people get stuck or hung up in the way that they do things in business, they don't really look at any other way to do it. And even if someone comes to them and says, hey, what a different way of looking at it, would you be interested? Because they haven't built that relationship up, they they don't trust that person. But coming in as, as an accountant who's been with them for many years and have become friends with them, I can, I can introduce a lot of different ideas to them, not only in accounting, but the way they, they look at life as well. And, and I'm able to change them. Uh, one of the things I've been able to do is be able to travel with my kids and take three months off in a year. Most of the clients I have are earning millions. They never take a holiday. I've been able to persuade them to be able to take, say, a month off without telephones or anything, leave it to their secondary, to their assistants to run the business, and you know what? They've really helped themselves that way, and they've become a lot happier and healthier. Hello? I love that a lot. So um, in writing the books, especially the ones that you wrote for your kids, um, what what specific is one thing? And I mean, I know there's a ton of stuff in it, but what's one thing that you could share with the audience today that they too could do to you know, help themselves improve their lives? Well, first of all, don't judge people. Um, uh, don't profile people uh, and, 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 and judge them immediately because there's always a different side of it, of, of that particular person. Everybody has many sides, not just one. So I'll give you an example. I wrote a story about going to Oman, to, to its capital called Muscat. And I'm one of these guys that I want to see how the locals live. And I want to eat what the locals do, do what they do, as opposed to seeing great, big, you know, wonderful uh, sites, tourist sites. So I asked for a taxi to come and take me around, around um, Muscat in, in Oman, which is in the Gulf States. And they, they brought me uh, a taxi driver who couldn't speak English and who, who had uh, an old Toyota car, which is completely dented. The guy looked really ominous, and he wouldn't, really, he wouldn't talk to me. He could hardly speak English. And for the whole day, we had arranged, I had arranged this trip for the full day. For the whole day, he kept wanting to take me to their greatest uh, shopping malls because he was so proud that they were coming out of um, an old age into a new one. I wanted to go to a museum. You know, I asked him, yeah, I asked him to broken English, where he at, if he could take me somewhere to eat and join me. And he was absolutely uh, upset at that because he says, you know, I, I'm a taxi driver. I'm not a shake. And he wouldn't take me anywhere to eat. These, uh, eat. So by the time we got to the hotel, he refused to take my, the money that we had agreed on for his fee. I rushed into the manager. I said to him, I came and said to the manager, hey, I'm not paying this guy anymore. He only took me to one or two places. Uh, he didn't take me to all the places I wanted to go to. And I think he's asking me for, for more money. The guy, the manager went and talked to the taxi driver and came back to me and started laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? He said, well, he only wants to take half the money because he only took you to half the places. Now, to me, 
You know, it might be a, a humorous anecdote, but it really shows how people, by judging people and putting them in slots, how they, they themselves do harm, harm to themselves as well. Because if I had known that's what the, what the taxi driver was about, and you hear all these stories about how terrible taxi drivers are and how they rip you off, if I'd known how kind and generous he was, I wouldn't have acted the, the way with him in, in insisting and in doing something the way I did. And I think I would have got a lot more from that person. And I think that if you can look at the people around you and not necessarily look, look at them in the same channel that you have always viewed them, and if you look at them in, different, in, in a different angle, I think that your life will be a lot richer. Now, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of something else. I did, I felt sorry for a bunch of people who had tax returns. They're only earning a few thousand dollars a year. They're always behind in doing their tax returns. And I would go to them, I'd do the tax returns for them, and I'd say, look, you've been in Calgary for 30, 40 years. You had your school here. You, you're really sociable. You're a really nice person. Um, you go and play hockey with your buddies. You must know somebody who's rich who needs his taxes saved. So I get these people to talk to the president of the company. My school friend was a was a tax or was a, a, has become a president of an oil company, and I think he wants to sell the oil company, but he's worried about the taxes. So I go in there. The president will speak to me because his buddy asked him to call me and talk to me. I never make any cold calls to customers. I then go ahead, I'm able to show him how we can save a bunch of taxes, and I'm able to give this person who might be earning a few thousand dollars a year, I might be able to give him 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 thousand dollars for that introduction. But it's not looking at that initial client of mine and saying what a nuisance he is, but looking at him and saying, Look at the other things. He may not be good at putting his papers together for a tax return, but look at the person he is. Look at, look at the potential he might have. And in that, I not only get benefited myself, I benefited that person. Does that make sense to you? It absolutely does. So for people who would like to get your books or um, you know, go deeper with you, how can somebody get in contact with you? Well, my website is emilrem.ca. And that's E-M-I-L-R-E-M dot C-A. Well, that's awesome. Emil, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. When we look through someone else's eyes, we can see a perspective that can change our whole entire view of things. And what a better way than that to live as a thriving entrepreneur. We are going to move right on now to our next guest here on Thriving Entrepreneur. Join me in welcoming Zach Zarillo. Hey, Zach, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So first off, tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Yeah, um, I live in Philadelphia. I've worked in the music industry. Um, I'm 30. I've worked in the music industry since I was uh, 16. I started uh, at 16 with a blog, uh, kind of focused around the alternative 
punk music scene and over the last 14 years have become a manager, a record label owner, and uh, many things in between. So back in the day, um, were you a musician or um, just always kind of more in promotion space? I I, uh, I, pl- I played and do play guitar, but I, I would not really consider myself a musician. I, it was a dream of mine as a kid to be in a band, but not something I ever pursued. Uh, so I would say I've always been in a promotional and managerial space. Well, I can tell you, Zach, for all of us that have ever been in a band, it's a lot of work for, in most all of our cases, not a whole lot of uh, financial gain, maybe a lot of personal gain, but not a lot of money there. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's nice to have some things. As I've gotten older and do more and more things, I've also realized it's nice to have some hobbies that are just for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it. it's kind of nice to know what things you can do to make money and what things you can do to just relax and enjoy yourself. Well, that's cool. So tell us, starting back, you know, when you were 16, you started out this popular uh, blog about music and it just really took off. Um, tell us a little bit about how you, you know, you, you started it and got that original traction to be so popular, you know, even way back then. Yeah, I, I it was, I was very fortunate in the time and place. Um, Tumblr, the web blog service had just started when I found it and started using it. Um, I, I didn't do any of it on purpose. I was not 16 thinking to myself, ooh, I want to have a successful blog or turn this into a career. It was more just so that I wanted to share thoughts on bands I loved. And then I think, frankly, because Tumblr was so new and gaining so much popularity, my blog kind of took notice and really became a uh, you know a, a, a reliable place people went every single day for many years until I shut it down at the end of college. Was there a particular reason you shut it down at the end of college? Was it just time for it to be over, or did something you know cause you to to want to end it? It's a good question. It it felt like time. I had just gotten a, a job at the same time working for one of my favorite bands who um, were kind of quite mysterious by nature. And oddly, they found out about me because of my blog where I covered them so intensely. <laughs> so uh, part of me felt like I couldn't really keep running the blog in good faith if I was going to work for this artist. But also it was the end of college. I was moving back to New York where I'm from, from Philadelphia, just felt like if there was ever going to be a time, this was it. And also, frankly, coupled with, I came to a realization at some point in college that it's very hard to make a living uh, owning a blog. And that's something that has only become much more true in the last um, eight years since I closed it, right? So it just felt like a natural ending point. And I didn't want to ever have the blog if it wasn't something I didn't love. And I could see with real life out of college, um, a relationship, different work responsibilities that it, it might just, it could become that if I didn't say goodbye to it at a time I was happy to. Well, it's good that you uh, knew when it had come, you know, the full fruition, if you will, and moved on versus, like so many people do where you just hang on to it and hang on to it. And 
it becomes this, you know, brick around your neck that everybody else can see isn't doing any good, but is just holding you down from where you could go next. Precisely. It felt, it felt right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the music industry. You know, you uh, deal mostly in the alternative side. Um, tell us the names of some bands that we might know of and, and also some of them that we've never heard of that are super cool that, uh, that, you know, that you've worked with or that you really, you know, like to promote? Sure. Uh, so I co-own a company called Alternate Side. We employ seven total people, my partner, Abhanj, and I. Uh, the largest artist I work with and the largest artist in the company is, in, uh, is named Cave Town. He makes kind of alternative pop music and is based out of the UK. Uh, he has something like six or seven gold records and a couple platinum records he headlines to three to five thousand people around the world um but we also have other artists at the company that i don't manage that are you know just tremendous like a band called citizen uh who are just this past weekend celebrated the 10th anniversary of their first album and played uh multi-thousand cap sold out shows across the country um, yeah, so we do a wide spectrum of music from somewhat pop to alternative to uh, punk, hardcore, uh, some hip hop and everything in between. I love that. So let's talk about, um, you know, the alternative industry. You know, frankly, when we think about it, um, typically speaking, there's one or two types of people. Uh, you know, race, ethnicity, belief system, all of that, that we typically think of as, um, especially punk artists, but, you know, everywhere in the alternative scene. But I know it's a lot broader than that. Um, but how do people who, you know, maybe don't see themselves on stage when they're, you know, when they're looking at whatever band, doesn't matter what genre of music it is, um, how do they be able to really love that culture and that music and just be free to be themselves uh, in the music that they love versus feeling like because they're a specific whatever, they have to be into, you know, some certain thing that the world tells them they should be. I think the beautiful thing about punk rock music and what really got me hooked and ultimately changed and saved my life most likely was um, punk rock is a place to fit in when you don't fit anywhere else. I say that as currently a 30-year-old white guy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, growing up, it, I, I, I felt safe to fit in, too, because it was just people that looked like me. Um, over the years, I think, you know, the, the punk scene, while it still has a tremendous way to go, just like most areas of our life, has definitely gotten a little more diverse. And, and that's been really exciting. My partner, Avange, manages this amazing band called Meet Me at the Altar, Um who are three women, um, Black and Hispanic and queer. Um, and we've just seen from going to their shows, it's a totally different audience that goes to one of our all-male punk band shows. And it's because they feel represented for the first time. You know, a young Black woman or a queer Hispanic woman can, can see themselves in this artist that they've seen on TV or a Taco Bell commercial or on Spotify. And uh, it's definitely a real desire for us right now to be able to bring in more people from different cultures into the music scenes we work in through you know 
uh, much needed and desired diversity. Mm, absolutely. You know, and I would say to people, it doesn't, again, really matter what the genre is. Um, I mean, you could be a, and I'm just going to totally stereotype here for a second, apologize to everybody in the world, but you could be a young black inner city person who just happens to have listened to Tchaikovsky or Beethoven or Mozart and absolutely love some of that kind of stuff. Um, and don't ever let the world tell you that because of the neighborhoods you live in and maybe even the sounds of music that you hear playing on people's radios as they drive down the street, that that's the only choice for you musically because all of it is meant for you. And somewhere in there, uh, you know, if you'll take the time, you'll find that sound that really, really appeals to the heart and soul and core of you. That's what I love so much about a music is, is that no matter who you are, there's something out there that can just take you beyond. Do you know what I mean by that, Zach? Absolutely. Uh, it happened to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I, music is a one of one superpower to, to change people. Um, and you never know when you're going to hear something that sounds unlike anything you've ever heard that, you wouldn't have guessed could change your life or inspire you. And then all of a sudden you hear a three minute song and it sets you down a different path. So what's next for Zach? What are, what are the kind of things, um, you know, from where you are right now, working in the industry, working with the bands that you do work with, what, what, what's next for you? What, what do you see coming up in the near future? Yeah, the, the biggest thing I'm working on right now is 30 days away, which is terrifying and exciting, which is that Cave Town is starting his own festival this summer that has three other acts on it traveling from California to the East Coast called Bittersweet Days, where we've built out full branding, inflatable characters, you know, uh, step and repeats, this whole new world we've built inside his audience coming to this tour this summer. And we're really excited about that. It's been a process we've been working on for 18 months and it has been all encompassing and we're really excited for it to kick off. That is so cool. And so um, if I understood you correctly, that's kind of going across the country. There's multiple venues. Absolutely. It's a traveling festival. It starts in Los Angeles at the Greek theater and, and ends in Worcester, Massachusetts. So yeah, it really goes through the whole country. Wow, that's cool. So people that would like to, you know, come and attend and be part of that, where can they get more information? Yeah, they can go to bittersweetdays.com. Days is spelled D-A-Z-E, like you're in a daze. Oh, I love that. Is there anything else that you have that you'd like to promote for us so that we could do to support you? Sure, thank you. I would just say if you're interested in checking out a bunch of different new music, please go to alternateside.co and click on a link there. You might find something that you really enjoy. I love that so much. Well, Zach, before we go, give us uh, just one last piece of encouragement about how powerful music can be and should be in our lives. Sure. I think um, music can be a best friend to you and can always be there. And you can always find something out of your favorite album on a different listen. 
10 years, 15 years, three years in that you never heard before. And it's probably really one of the only things in life that you can get an experience like that and should be treasured. I love it. Well, Zach, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Even music has its alternatives and there are people who are into those kind of things. What are the things that you're into that are maybe alternatives to stuff that other people like? And how can you promote both through your work as well as just in your life, things that can help others find alternatives in their life and live as a thriving entrepreneur? Here comes our next guest. Join me in welcoming Ryan Hanley. Hey, Ryan, how are you doing today? What's going on, man? It's good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you here. So first of all, tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. I am the founder and CEO of a national commercial independent insurance agency. Um, we work with small and medium-sized businesses around the country. Um, I've been in the insurance industry for 18 years. There's a checkered past back there, how I got to the entrepreneur side of that. But um, my goal is to help small businesses and mid-sized businesses create sustainability a lot of our peers talk about talk in terms of protection. Um, we do not protect businesses. We're not standing guard out front of them. What we do is make sure that small and medium-sized businesses are put back to whole when they have their worst day and, and bad things happen. We can't stop that no matter how much protection you have. But what we can do is make sure that if that bad day happens, that you're put back together. And I enjoy doing that every day. I love that. So, um, define for us what you mean by the word sustainability. I mean that you operate every day on a tightrope wire uh, as a small business. Uh, someone could walk in and slip and fall. An employee could get hurt. You could have an electrical fire. You could get a hole in your roof. Uh, one of your distributors could just not send you the inventory you need uh, the local government could decide to shut down your block because of uh, environmental concern. There's a million different reasons why your business could have uh, what we'll just call a bad day. And the goal is not to stop those things from happening because that's impossible. The goal is to make sure that when you have your bad day, you're able to get through it through uh, financial reimbursement for what in insurance terms is called a loss. And all those things I'd described are covered losses under a standard insurance policy. So what we're doing is giving you the ability, and in this case, I refer to it as sustainability, giving you the ability to put yourself back to whole financially after you have uh, some sort of negative incident. Now, your industry often gets a bad rap. I think all of us have watched too many movie and TVs uh, shows and uh, and think of organizations who will fight the claim. But the truth of the matter is, is that really is not the intention or what usually happens in insurance. Is that true or or am I off? Yeah. So you have one, you have to bifurcate health insurance and property casualty insurance. So what I do is property casualty insurance, the, the insurance that protects your business. Health insurance is a completely different monster. And unfortunately, uh, many of the uh, classically applied upon cliches that have to to do with insurance being horrible um, have are rooted in some truth when it's applied to health insurance. Health insurance is just its own monster. It's an absolute mess. Um, you know, however you you know feel about Obamacare, it, it doesn't really matter. There there is no good solution right now when, in terms of health insurance. Now it's better than not having health insurance, but um, that side of the business, which we we that's not what we do. Um, 
this definitely has deserved some of the negative uh, sentiment that's been applied upon it. However, our side of the business is is very different. Um, if you're if you run a, a small business, let's say you run just a, a local convenience store or a gas station, and there's a spark in the electrical box, and you show up the next day, and that building's on your building's on fire or burnt down. The community is not rallying around you to put that business back up. The, you still have to pay the banknote that you took out or the small business loan that you took out to buy that business. You still have to pay vendor contracts that were unpaid. Like no one is coming to save you except for the insurance company. So, you know, the only organization that's going to walk up to your business with a check and say, here, pay for your inventory claims, pay for your employees, pay for uh, the building to be um rebuild. And here's a check for all the lost income that you're going to have over the next six months as the as the business being put back together is the is an insurance organization and is an insurance company. So that could be Travelers, Hartford, Chubb, you know, there's Liberty Mutual, there's a ton of them. And um, in that regard, while uh, our insurance, our business is not sexy, it is definitely boring to the average person. I completely understand why it's easy to hate on it. Like I, I get it. Um, you know, I, I firmly believe that we do incredibly noble work. I mean, we we are the undercurrent of all these entrepreneurs who walk around and go on, you know, every all this celebration of business people and entrepreneurs, not a single one of them could do any of the things that they do if they didn't have a commercial insurance policy behind them. Just none of it would happen, literally couldn't happen. In order for you to get funded by a venture capitalist, you need to have an insurance policy in place. In order to get a small business loan, you need to have an insurance policy in place. And the reason for that is that's how these organizations that are willing to give out money and fuel the economy, that is their backstop in the event that something really bad happens. And for that reason, while you know I, I, I don't take it personally that people tend to take shots at us. Um, I, at the same time, do not believe that particularly on our side of the business, it's warranted. Well, and I think it's one of those things where A, you get what you're paid for and B, you kind of need to know who you're dealing with before the calamity happens versus finding out afterwards. Um, with that said, how does a person know um, how to critique you know, because most of us don't live in that world all day long. So yeah. how do you know how to critique what is a good, a company that it really is going to cover you versus a company that, um, you know, may not be as easy to deal with when you're talking about those basic property and, you know, those kind of claims? Yeah. So this is a really hard question. Um, some of this is going to be gut feeling relationships still. I know that a lot of people want to automate our business and, and I can understand why there's, there's a lot of antiquated and legacy technology and systems and processes. And to the modern consumer of many other project uh, products, they come to the property casualty insurance world and they're like, oh my gosh, why is this so hard? Now, the reason um, is a couple fold. One, the insurance industry uh, has not needed to progress. Two, it's not broken. Um, but, but ultimately, there is nuance and what I mean by that is uh, you could have a hundred bakeries and every single one of them is different. So while, you know, kind of a, it, when, it, you know, personal insurance or in many other products, you know, you buy a stock, you buy a stock, you buy a stock. That's why every platform is now a zero free, you know, zero fee trading platform. And it, there's not really much value you can add one way or the other. 
um, when it comes to small businesses, they're, they're so unique. They're so different. They all offer different services. They're all different sizes. Every building is different. And each one of those aspects creates a different level of risk. So to that point, um, while there is a continued standardization and, you know, there's data that that's being pulled in from different sources now to make the collection process easier. Ultimately, at some point in the process, a human has to get involved and kind of bless whether or not it's priced properly and what have you. So to answer your question, find someone you trust. If you're buying insurance online, understand that that person is you. You're the insurance broker. So, you know, there's a lot of small business owners that we found these days that go to online platforms to purchase their to purchase your insurance. And I'm not talking about filling out a form and then talking to someone. That's a, essentially just a, a way of getting a hold of people. I'm talking about they go all the way through the process and, and purchase the insurance themselves. And in that regard, um, that's a perfectly fine option, but you need to trust yourself that you know what you're doing because there's no one to blame if you don't purchase the right insurance. And what happens most often, uh, at least in our business, because we're national and we use tools like SEO and YouTube marketing and stuff to, to get in front of people, um, people will go to one of those platforms and then they'll have a problem. The problem will not be handled in a way that they appreciate or works for them. And then they'll come and find us. And uh, I'm perfectly fine with that. And it's just unfortunate that they had to have that negative experience. But um, find someone you trust who you can talk to, who you can ask tough questions of, who you can feel comfortable explaining what's going on. And, um, you know, I think the biggest mistake that a lot of particularly small business owners, but, you know, really, this goes as far up the chain almost to enterprise, is that business owners will hold back on information because they think that somehow that will make their policy more expensive. Um, that is there is no rule that is that is not a rule in any way um that is completely uh like a like an old wives tale kind of thing um your insurance agent having more information doesn't drive your premiums up your insurance agent having more information allows them to make sure that you're properly protected you ultimately have to make the buying decision it's their job to put the op the uh, options in front of you so you know i think that find someone you trust have an honest and transparent relationship with them and, um, you know, work together to get to where you want to be. And, and look, you got to use your gut. If it doesn't seem like the person's working for you, if they're not responding to you, if they're not uh, asking questions, if they're not being proactive, then, you know, maybe you need to find somebody else. But, um, you know, there's no perfect way to choose somebody. I think you just have to find someone you're you're willing to have a relationship with and continue to to work through that relationship until it doesn't work anymore. So define for us, for the people listening, what kind of uh, people you like to work with. Um, yeah, let us know first, you know, the kind of people that you really like to help. Yeah. So, you know, if it, if you're, we work with small businesses in, in a lot of ways, shapes and forms. That being said, where we can actually help people is what we'll call experience rated businesses, which is absolute insider lingo. So let me just break down exactly what that means. What that means is um, companies who have, say, if you're a contractor, five plus employees, if you're any other type of business, uh, probably 10 plus employees, what happens is you hit a certain amount of workers' compensation uh, premium, and a certain number of workers will trigger this. And, and you go from a standard set rate, right? So just flat rate, however much, uh, however many employees you have, however much payroll you're paying them is how much you pay to uh, a variable number that is determined 
by your by the safety and 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 uh, by the safety and the lat in the the reduction of claims in your business. Wow, I couldn't get that out. But the reduction of claims in your business and. This is where we really step in and can be a true value provider. Uh, we have things like a nurse triage service that allows you to um, front end employee injuries so that they're not directly going to doctors. Um, they're talking to nurses for a low cost before we ever put a claim in, which reduces claims by 60%. We work with loss control professionals to come in and help you do things like find places where maybe you just have natural condensation on the floor and simply purchasing a slip mat and putting it down will reduce slip and falls. Um, looking at uh, different things with, uh, especially if you're in warehousing, if you're in anything with uh, open flames, if you're doing any kind of manufacturing, like these types of services that we provide are where we kind of go out beyond where most of our peers uh, operate and are really able to help people drive down costs while creating a safer work environment. Safer work environments are more efficient and productive and ultimately more profitable. So um, while it seems maybe like a stretch to uh, most people listening to this who've maybe never worked with an insurance professional who does these kind of things that actually your uh, insurance agent or insurance broker or however you refer to them, um, those terms are, while technically different, fairly synonymous, um, you know, could help you be more profitable. Uh, that is actually wholly true. And we find somewhere between um, 62 and 65% of all mid-market and small businesses are overpaying for their workers' comp because they just simply don't understand that they actually have control over the pricing of their policy. It has to do with performance. I mean, you can't just put in a million in workers' comp claims and expect to pay less. That's that's not never going to happen. But um if you have programs and you're intentional about it, which is what we do, we help them put those in, um, you can actually drive down costs quite substantially. And if you have a, a large uh, a large workforce, um, particularly if they're doing more manual labor type things, higher risk jobs, uh, this can be an absolute game changer. I mean, you know, you could you can turn around uh, your profit margin simply by pushing down your workers' comp premium. So it's a it's a different way of viewing the business. We call it Rogers 365. It's a 365 day a year program that helps you focus on the safety. And then we write all our lines to commercial auto and that kind of stuff. But um, our expertise and where we tend to really be able to be a true value provider um, beyond our competition is in helping people with their workers' compensation. I love that. And for somebody who wants to work with you, how can they get in hold of you? Go to roguerisk.com, R-O-G-U-E-R-I-S-K.com. Uh, and uh, we are a national team. I have people, we, we work in time zones and uh, we put every one of our team members uh, through uh, a special proprietary training program. So um, they buy into what we're doing. They believe in how we do it. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty special place that we've created. So um, uh, yeah. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Steve. I appreciate it, bud. What is the alternative to loss? To just having something and then having it be gone and there's no solution for going forward. There are some solutions and there are folks like Ryan that help us find alternative solutions when the worst things in life happen. What a better way to live than to help people in the worst of their times find sustainability and live as a thriving entrepreneur. And here is our last guest for today. Join me in welcoming John Ricketts. Hey, John, how are you doing today? 
Hey, I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? I am good, thanks. Thanks for being here with us. To kick us off, tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Yeah, so um, uh, originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, spent a large uh, part of my life in, in the state of Tennessee uh, with some brief stops in Salt Lake City, Utah and Dallas, Texas. Um, after undergrad, went to work for a couple of startups and uh, really caught the bug for, for building um, as well as introducing new technologies and spent the next sort of decade of my career in the healthcare uh, capacity, introducing uh, novel therapeutic devices. Um, and then about six years ago, uh, started to go back as an operator and a builder myself and explore some, some new applications with software that were able to help people do, um, do things a lot more efficiently. And that's obviously sort of led to where I am today as the co-founder and CEO of Writerly. Um, that's a generative AI platform um, that's uh, in the process of, of growth mode, I guess you could say right now. Oh, I love that. So um, let's start off with some real basics, you know, because with the radio show, we never know who we're talking to. Explain to somebody who's been living in a cave the last several years, what AI is and what it can do for you. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not so certain that a lot of people that have not been living in a cave the last few years could explain what AI is and what it can do for them, but I'll, I'll do my best. So, you know, at the core, AI is a, um, is really a system uh, based on, on computational mathematics that allows for uh, the consumption uh, in terms of inputs of large amounts of data um, that can result in, in outputs in more of a natural language. Um, in the generative AI space that we're working in, really focused on natural language um, AI. And so what that means is, I'm sure most of, of your listeners have uh, become familiar with ChatGPT, but someone could input a couple of pieces of information or data and from an output standpoint, create what they want. So for example, um, if you needed to write a blog, um, on why uh, Steve Kidd had one of the most popular podcasts uh, right now in the iTunes store. Um, you could go in, uh, add a few words on the on the front end, um, and output you know anywhere from a 500 to 2,000 word blog post on that exact topic in a matter of seconds. So, uh, from a content creation standpoint, uh, it allows uh, a lot of users, whether they're freelancers, whether they work inside large uh, marketing departments, um, the ability to create content in, you know, very fast, very meaningful ways. Um, you know, writing is something that's a lot, it can be more difficult for some than it is for others. And really, I, I view, and, and I think a lot of others view AI as a tool that really upskills uh, people to the extent that something that they may not be as comfortable with or confident with um, can leverage a tool like generative AI to create something that ordinarily would be very difficult and time consuming for them. Um, and you can certainly extrapolate other use cases beyond that uh, from the enterprise sense. Um, but at its basic level, uh, that's what it allows you to do. So let's talk about then the other direction of it, though. Um, what are some of the things that people would like for AI to do for them that uh, realistically, it really can't do right now. Mm. 
That's a great question. Um, I think what we're seeing right now is that we're on the threshold of, of AI being able to do a lot of things that were previously, um, you know, considered uh, unattainable. Um, you know, to be able to natural language your way through a, uh, a very technical or difficult Excel spreadsheet um, is now available. Uh, you can certainly uh, make dinner reservations through AI. You can have uh, AI tools compose emails in your own tone and tenor. Uh, the AI can understand you as a person and then uh, and then generate things that, that sort of look and sound like you. You know, some things that I think, uh, you know, uh, that, that AI is, we're not there yet, would be in the, the more technical skill spaces. Um, I do foresee a day where, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, architects can work in conjunction with AI, and, and some are already doing it today to an extent, um, to create uh, new home designs, uh, CAD renderings, things like that, because fundamentally, you can embed AI into software, uh, into existing software programs that we're accustomed to using, and really enhance the experience for both the, the, the user or the generator, as well as the uh, as the customer on the other side. So I, I don't really, um, I don't see a lot of areas right now that AI either isn't approaching or hasn't identified as a potential place. Um, but I think, you, you know, you, you typically see, you know, some of the most, uh, most interesting use cases really in healthcare. You know, how can we improve um, healthcare with technology like this? How can we, you know, better diagnose, um, uh, early cancers, early tumors, uh, from a diagnostic standpoint, and my position, um, which is not uh, which is not uncommon, I think it's um, it's shared by many, is that AI is not really a tool that's designed to replace us. I think that we need to look from an alignment perspective on how people use this tool, because at the end of the day, we're the ones that are setting the rules and the guidelines uh, for what this technology can and cannot do. Um, but we have to find the right alignment because if you start taking the human person out of the equation, um, we've seen it, you know, ourselves that it, it performs best when it has that sort of inspirational personal uh, guidance that's leading it. And I appreciate you saying that because I think sometimes people um, either say or think, I'm not sure which, it depends on the person, I suppose. Um, that uh, using a chat GPT or even more so you, your platform at Writerly is going to remove the concept of creativity, you know, and that natural in, innate human ability to bring out something that nobody's ever thought of before into, you know, into writing. So I appreciate that. I want to, you know, kind of pivot a little bit more specifically to Writerly um, and tell us, because you used chat GPT, because everybody knows about it, um, as an example, tell us what makes you guys stand above, what's different about you. Tell us a little bit about the specifics of what your company does. Yeah, so Riderly is, is a, we're a software company that, that builds um, really enterprise-focused software applications um, using generative AI. And so uh, you know, just from a, from a differential standpoint, um, we focus on building uh, features and products that impact businesses at scale, um, that entire marketing teams, um, you know, entire uh, agencies can, can collaborate through. Uh, so some feature sets, uh, 
might be the ability to um, to invite your coworkers or team members uh, to share your, your workspace, much like how Google Drive has allowed us um, to collaborate both uh, within the organization and outside the organization. We also focus mm -hmm. and we also understand that, uh, that brands have specific needs in terms of brand guidelines. Um, companies and brands spend a lot of money protecting how they portray their information in the marketplace. And it definitely has a look and a feel, you know, Coca-Cola, um, UPS, you know, uh, Ford Motor Company, they, they all have very strict guidelines in which they follow. And so we can build uh, AI tools that mimic the actual brand. And the AI is trained on how the brand speaks. It's trained on their sort of cadence. It's trained on a number of different things that comply within that, that style guideline because that's important for a lot. You know, if you do go to a general, you know, sort of chat GPT, um, the outputs are generated based on what that model thinks the output should be. Um, there, there are some ways to be able to further train a model to speak and to mimic um, the voice of that particular user, which is really interesting. So I think you get a little higher fidelity, higher quality content um, going down that road. And so we've invested a lot in that. Um, but generally, you know, Writerly is is an enterprise level um, version of ChatGPT. I love that. So what would be the ideal kind of person that should come to you, you know, that they're at the right stage to use you guys as service? Yeah, great question. I think um, it's 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 probably the person or the organization that's curious about AI. Um, and I think there's a lot of curiosity out there right now. Uh, but with that curiosity comes, comes hesitancy. You know, uh, how do you trust the AI? Um, how do you use the AI to maximize impact? Um, there's still a lot of questions, and I think we're still really, really early in the generative AI game. There's a lot of tools being built with some amazing teams out there, and it's fun to sit back and watch. But I think from our perspective, our our our, our best customers are those that are that are that are thinkers. They're they're creatives themselves, and they're saying, okay, you know, I have a really good idea about what this tool can do, but I'm not really sure, you know, kind of how to do it. And there's oftentimes we've been able to help um you know, flush out some opportunities that perhaps the the end user wasn't aware of. Um, but we love those that are curious enough to take the next step and say, hey, I've got a team and we need to um, we need to consolidate this and and we want to embrace it and lean into the technology. Um, but we also want to understand what the implications are, you know, once we begin using it. And then, you know, what are the implications if we don't? Um, so I'll give you an example. We have a specific product uh, within the e-commerce space that is a, a really more vertical focused product than, than Riderly. Riderly's uh, uh, more of a horizontal uh, generative AI platform. But within e-commerce, um, we're able to take multiple disparate data sets uh, that brands and companies rely on and then combine that with, with an AI model that's then able to either generate thousands of new product descriptions, meta tags, keywords, um, or even refresh existing digital assets. And, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, has been talked about for, for a number of years inside the e-commerce space. But we find, you know, again, that our sort of our best customers and, and certainly the early customers are like, hey, you know, we've thought about this. We've had meetings where we'd say, hey, 
this would be really cool or really neat if we had this. Well, this is finally here now. Uh, certainly Riderly's working on it. There's a host of other really, really strong companies that are working on similar uh, uh, challenges. And it's just a really fun time to be in this space. But we embrace curiosity and, and we like our customers to do the same. And John, for people who would like to work with you, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, sure. So uh, writerly.ai, W-R-I-T-E-R-L-Y.ai is our URL. Um, we have uh, certainly some, some contact us forms on the website. Uh, for any of your listeners that would like to reach out directly, I, I'm a believer in making myself available. Uh, they can send me an email directly at uh, John, J-O-N, no H, at writerly.ai. And um, look forward to hearing uh, from anybody that, that may reach out. There are so many cool things that can happen these days with AI. And I do encourage all the listeners to reach out to John and see what how AI might really help, uh, you know, get some of the things that you're doing to be a little bit less arduous than what some of those mundane tasks can be. John, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Hey, Steve, thank you so much. Great talking with you. You got to check out the alternative writerly.ai. I mean... I've been talking now, being interviewed, doing all kinds of things with AI, um, and we've come so far. I mean, even since a couple of months ago when I interviewed with John on this, AI has come a long ways. We're never going to cre uh, replace creativity. No one's ever going to create something that replaces the unique, wonderful brilliance that is you because you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose and the world needs you. What we can create is things that make your life easier, your job easier, help you be able to see different perspectives and the ability to be able to attain information and compile it in a really cool, succinct ways. By the way, I have a cool new product coming out. Tease, tease, tease. It'll be out soon that you are going to love to check out that uses somewhat in AI with it. And all of those are designed to help us find alternative solutions, but more than anything, to live our lives as a thriving entrepreneur. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. My name is Steve Kidd. I am a third-generation minister, an international best-selling author of multiple books, and I help people write, publish, and market their books to bestseller. In fact, there are literally thousands of people that have used the system that I created to be able to write, publish, and market their books, and now they're best-selling authors, and you're next. I just wanted to come on for a minute, say hi to you, tell you a little bit about me, introduce myself and tell you, I know the world is waiting on your message and I would be so honored to be part of sharing your message with the world. Go to AskSteveKid.com and schedule a time to talk today.